of some things that you would like to see different this year. You're, you, you know, maybe you haven't made like a formal uh, a resolution, but you, you know, you've got some things you would like to see different. You, you would like to see something change this year. Raise your hand. Okay, that's a lot more hands than the, the resolution question. Okay, and I already asked how many people have actually made a resolution. You made a plan. Raise your hand again. If you've like made a resolution, you kind of like have a plan formed in your mind. Raise your hand. Okay, far, far less. Uh, let me ask you this. How many, raise your hand, if you are here, you, you have made a decision, you not only want to see something change, you've made a decision, you've kind of got a plan formed in your mind, and you have written it down. You've written something down. Here, one, four, six. Okay, like six hands. Okay, so those percentages are going way, way, way down. Um, this is interesting. Statistics show, statistics show that people who wish for something different and who stop right there have a 95% chance of never seeing that come to pass. That's just sobering little thought. Sitting here this morning, man, I really wish something's different this year. I've got an idea of something I'd really like to be different. Wishing it, 95% chance it won't come to pass. But making a decision and then kind of making a plan in your head, like actually making a plan, it improves those odds, but only slightly there's still an 80% chance it won't come to pass, all right? So it improves the odds about 15% there. Writing it down, writing it down, there's something about it. Writing it down improves your odds dramatically, but it's about 50%. About 50% of people who write their goals down and their strategies down, writing it down, you know, you're talking about paper or, or Evernote or whatever you use, whatever you use to write it down, 50%. When you think about it, that's better, but it's not really fantastic odds, is it? If there was a 50% chance this morning of you getting in a car accident on the way to the church, you'd probably stay home, wouldn't you? That's just not odds you want to play with, 50%. Um, here's the sad fact. Most people will give up their New Year's resolutions, most people, within the first week of making them. That's what the statistics tell us. And after six months, almost no one keeps their resolutions. So resolutions, there's something about it. And what that tends to do, if, if, if you're like me, you know, and if you've been on this planet for a little while, you, uh, you kind of start to get to where I'm not going to make anymore, right? Because I, I, I noticed some of your faces when I said, who's made a resolution? Some of you kind of had that look like, no, I'm not doing that again, right? Been there, done that, made the same resolution 18 times, not making anymore. And, and, and so resolutions are, are something temporary, it's something we kind of think about at the new year, but it's temporary, and they usually don't work. So really, we don't really need more resolutions. We don't need another resolution. What we want in our lives is revolution. We want revolution. And revolution is different. It's lasting because it's not about just trying out a new set of rituals. That's kind of what a resolution is. I'm going to start getting up at such and such a time and doing this and this thing. It's, you know, it's a set of rituals. Revolution isn't about trying out some new rituals. It's about something fundamental that is changed on the inside of you. On the inside. That's revolution. A resolution is on the outside. I'm going to start doing something on the outside, or I'm going to start looking a certain way. Revolution happens on the inside. Okay? Resolutions are all about doing something. It's all about doing something new. But revolutions are about being. It's about being something different. When you've undergone a revolution, you're not just performing something 
differently. You, you are something different. You are something. We don't just need more band-aids in our life, right? You don't need more work to do, right? I'm guessing. We don't need that. We need, we need a revolution. A resolution goes after uh, the symptoms. That's a resolution. But a revolution goes after the disease. That's what we need. A revolution is about change from the DNA out. That's revolution. Revolution is how a humble little group of people in a faith community from Spring, Texas, start to be changed by God to change the world. That takes revolution, right? Our church isn't making any resolutions. That's not good enough. We're we're, We're ready to make some revolution around here. Amen? Amen. Today, we're launching a new series. I'm I'm very excited about it. It's just been burning inside me. This new series, and it's called My New Year's Revolution. And over the next several weeks, um, we're going to talk about not only some ways that we can become those people changed by God to change the world, but we're also going to talk about some ways, uh, talk about things that we can let go of that are holding us back. it's 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 important not just to to give you more things to do, to give you more steps to follow, more, you know, more things to add to your life. There's some things in your life as well as my life that need to be dropped, right? It's like we're on a journey and we have overpacked. Last week we had, we talked about the journey, the, you know, flight 2015, we're going to be taken together. And I think some of us have overpacked for this journey and it's weighing us down. So we're going to talk about that. Um, things that we need to get rid of, but we sometimes we just never find the fortitude to make that decision. And, and then we want to learn also over the course of this series to learn how to support each other in helping to get those destructive things out of the shadows into the light where God can do some good in our life. You ready? You ready with me? Okay. Now, how I'm starting this series today, and we, I prayed about this, and and um, obviously I prayed about this, but how I'm starting today is a little different than how I thought we would be starting a, a month ago um, because I'm not going to kick off today with kind of your typical New Year's really super fun pep talk. Instead, I want to go right to the jugular of something that if we don't get a fix on right away, right from the beginning, if we don't get a fix on, it'll derail any great idea you come up with, any, any awesome uh, thing, inspiring thing that you and I can come up with together. It'll stop revolution in its tracks. Today, we're going to talk about the heaviness of secret sin. Hey, we've got slides. The heaviness of secret sin. Not just sin, uh, but, but the deadly secrecy, that secrecy that protects our image. That, that can drag us down, that sort of thing. Wh- why am I starting with this? And the reason why I'm starting with this, because I don't want to just deliver, you know, a, a, a fun, um, uh, sort of interesting f- four-part series that may be sort of interesting to hear, but nobody really puts it into effect. You know, we, we've all... Uh, you know, been guilty of sitting through a, a sermon or a series that maybe it was really awesome, you know, maybe it had lots of neat slides and lots of video and fun and drama and, and we went home and did the same thing right? 
That's why people stop making resolutions. I don't want that for us. I want to help us all experience real soul change, okay? That's what I'm after. So I'm excited about it. So let's dive right in here. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want to start off by, uh, I want to make a few suggestions for us that'll help us going forward. You know how uh, at the beginning of the, of the U.S. Constitution, there's this thing called the preamble. Everybody heard of the preamble? Uh, you remember from, from school? And the preamble is this sort of a short statements of, of the overarching principles of the Constitution. It gives it in this short preamble. To, I want to give a little preamble to our Declaration of Revolution this morning, okay? Uh, just kind of a few introductory principles that I hope you'll grab a hold of with me in order for us to be on the same page. And I think it's going to help bring about maximum impact in this series over the next few weeks, okay? So here they are. The first, first part of this preamble is principle number one. Reject the vi- victim mentality. We, we got to get on the same page here. Reject the victim mentality. Just, and, and it's something you got to wake up every morning and do all over again because it creeps up, and I, I, I'm the same way. Five times, you know, five, ten, fifteen, hundred times a day, I find myself playing the victim to something. We have to reject that. A lot of people want to blame their struggles either on other people or on some natural quirk. Well, that's just me, right? Like, you know, like the old uh, pop star Tom Jones. Everybody remember Tom Jones, right? Has some awesome medallions. He had the, you know, the the really awesome uh, stern bush going on out of his hair, out of his chair. Uh, his shirt. He sang that song, uh, I'm not responsible for anything I do when I'm with you. Anybody remember that but me? I'm not responsible for anything I do when I'm with you, right? It's, it's, this, is, this is pretty much the mindset of a lot of folks. It's a catchy tune, but it's like this horrible message. I'm not responsible, right? Uh, and he tries to pass it off like as a compliment in this song. It's like this typical male come on line to woo a woman. Uh, like, I can get away with anything I want, and in the end, it's kind of your fault, right? That's, it's kind of the, the idea. And it seems hilarious, but, but we, uh, we use this mentality in so many areas of our life. When, when it comes to that person or that thing, I just can't help myself. It has a power over me, right? And I'm a victim. I'm, I'm victimized by it. I'm not responsible. We need to reject that victim mentality if we're going to grow. To be a Christian is to be defined not by your past, but by your future. Because God's written your future. So it's just as real as your past was, right? God has written it. And yes, your past has consequences, we know that. But the future of who God is designing you to be is just as real as your past was. That future is just as real. So why would you let your past define you? Instead, we want to let our future define you. So that's that's where God is taking you. That is that's what uh, Paul says in Philippians three. He says, "But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead." That's a good message for 2015, right there. Forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead. As a Christian, it doesn't matter what you've been through, the good, the bad, the ugly, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be defined by it or victimized by it another day. Amen? Number two of our little preamble here. You are continually defining your character 
through the choices that you make. You're defining your character through the choices that you make. Here's what I'm, I'm getting at here. See, you can't continue to make a series of choices that are headed in one direction while you tell yourself that you're something else. I'm, I'm preaching to me too this morning, okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. You can't do that. You cannot say, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a good husband and continually cheat on your wife. There's a name for someone who continually cheats on their wife. It's called an adulterer, right? And, and sometimes there's just a freedom in naming that thing and saying, okay, here's my problem. I need to be healed of this. I need to get over this, and I need to repent of my sin. Um, you can't say, I'm basically an honest person. I just lie sometimes, right? But I'm basically an honest person. I just lie sometimes. Um, if you lie to people, that's called being a liar, <laughs> right? It's not a good thing. You can't continually, habitually, I'm talking about the continual, habitual, uh, the choices that you make in a certain direction. I'm not talking about, you know, you messed up one time. I'm talking about the habitual things, the choices that you make. It's become your lifestyle, and you're making those choices, and, and expect your character to turn out somehow different. Like you're divorced from those choices. It doesn't work that way. And over time, in fact, what happens is we solidify who we are becoming by making choice after choice. You're determining who you're becoming. And, and it'll move in one direction or the other for the good or for the bad. Uh, there's a passage in 1 Timothy where Paul says, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. It's something we got to do over and over. You and I are to train ourselves for godly living, like, like a runner or a boxer. And, and, and that's part of the process of discipleship, is training ourselves to be godly. What's interesting is also uh, Peter says something. Apostle Peter says something in Second Peter. He uses the same word, that train word that Paul does, but now he uses it in a negative sense. Look at here. He says he's talking about people who are increasingly sinful in how they live, and he says this, they have hearts trained in greed. It's the same Greek word there, that disciplined athletic training. One side is training to be godly. The other side is they're, they're giving it all they got to train in greed. And just as Paul says we should train ourselves for godly living, if you don't do that, it, it's quite possible to find that you have trained yourself in greed. So the choices that you make every day, not how well-intentioned you are, Right? That's what I'm trying to get across here. It, it's your actual choices that are training your character in one direction or another. All right. Principle number three. Last part of our little preamble here. Number three. Get there. There we go. <laughs> Letting go of things that you like can help you move toward the life that you truly want. Letting go of things that you like can help get you to the life you truly want. What I mean here, in the New Testament, there seems to be this assumption the writers make there that as you and I are conformed to Christ, that we would actually start to want the good life. Jesus doesn't come along and say, he doesn't have this attitude like, well, there's this life that, that uh, you know, you want, and then there's this life that you're supposed to have. 
he's, he's, the, the assumption is there that as we are conformed to Christ, we would actually start to want that good life. Jesus comes into our lives, and he illuminates the true desires that have been lying dormant and dead in our spirit man. Your spirit man is the true you, right? That's the true you. And before Jesus came along, that, that guy was dead. There's not much happening there, no activity, right? Your, your, your flesh and your mind had kind of been running the show. But now your true self has been awoken. It's, it has been reborn, we say. And so our true selves, when that happens, Jesus comes in and our true self wakes up and it has its desires. The true us has its desires. And those God-given dreams that we didn't even know about because we were, we were living as slaves to our appetites. And so we read passages like this in Galatians. In Galatians 5, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's two areas that you can live out of this year. Your true core the real you, the true you, your, your spirit man, or you can live separated from your true self and live according to the flesh. And those things are in conflict with each other. When you live according to the flesh, you're, you're actually living in a way that is in conflict with the real you, the spirit, the real you. So in this series, we're learning how to say, God, help me to live the life that I truly want to live, that I really want to live. Okay, does everybody still have their Bibles open to 1 Corinthians? All right, let's look at these two verses, verses 12 and 13. These two verses pack a punch. This is where we're, we're landing today. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear or resist is what that means. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's a lot of good news packed into these two verses, okay? Because temptation is a part of our daily life, right? Let's just get that out of the way. You're gonna be tempted today and every day of your life. You're going to be tempted the Bible even promises you will be tempted. So, so having no more temptation is not the goal. But, but this verse gives us some great truths that we can draw out. First of all, in verse 12, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Here's something that I see right here that we cannot stress enough in the church today, and that is this. Pride will set you up for disaster. Pride will set you up right? And Proverbs uh, 16, 18 says, pride goes before the f- destruction. One translation I, l- I really like says, pride precedes a disaster. Pride precedes a disaster. That's why humility just makes sense. Humility, humility gets, a, gets a bad rap. It, it is not debasing ourselves to say, oh, I'm, I'm such a terrible person. Humility is simply being tuned into reality, that's what humility is. It's acknowledging reality. It's making sense of who you are. You, are, you and I are this strange combination of, of one who is made in the image of God. Right? You, you are an image bearer of the divine. That's cool. That's pretty cool to me. 
It's glorious. But you are also broken. So we are broken image bearers. And we have to speak honestly about that. And humility is just tuning into reality. Sometimes in the church culture, we've defined uh, spiritual maturity as, as looking like somebody who doesn't have to struggle anymore. Like that's spiritual maturity. No more struggle. They've gotten to the place where they're just standing firm, no problems, no struggles. But Paul says, if you have gotten to that place, watch out. That's his words. Watch out. Because we all strive and we all struggle together. Maturity is when you are winning the battle. Not when you're not fighting the battle. It's when you're winning the battle. Watch out at that point. If this idea that I'm no longer fighting a battle, if that becomes your public image, that you're marketing of yourself, watch out. Watch out. Here's another truth about temptation that this scripture teaches us, that no temptation is uncommonly difficult. No temptation is uncommonly difficult. In verse 13, he says here that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And I know there are certain temptations probably in your life that we, you feel are just surely, surely that's at some uncommonly high level, right? You're thinking, oh, man, you don't know. That, that, I ha- I'm tempted there much more than most people. And like, like there's this sort of imaginary normal level that everyone else is tempted at for most people. But for our life, it's off the charts, right? Our temptation, our PM meter is redlining, you know, on, on that thing. And we have this sense that, no, 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 you just don't understand. In my life, there's this per- particular thing. Scott, you don't get it, right? Well, it may be encouraging for you to know this morning that actually no matter how great your temptation is, it's within the realm of normality, okay? It's common to man. Let's use um, a common temptation to man, sexual temptation, as an example. Say a guy comes to me, he says, Scott, uh, you don't understand the sexual drive? Mm." temptation in me, it's burning inside. My sexual appetites, it's uncontrollable. It's off the charts. It's way above the norm, man. I can't handle it. So I would say to this guy, okay, okay, do you think you would be able to fight it if if I could teach you a way to bring your sexual temptation, at least to within normal boundaries? Um, We can't get rid of it altogether, but at least we could bring it into normal boundaries. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No problem. I mean, absolutely. Then I could handle it. Um, Then I would go, okay, here's what I can do. Are you ready? Okay. There you go. Your temptation is within normal boundaries. I can say that from Scripture, because Scripture says that. No temptation has seized you that isn't common to everyone. Now, the specifics of your temptation might be different than someone else. But the level of temptation is common. For someone else, it, it, it might not be a sexual thing. It might be about um, might be acquiring things, right? Some of you are like professional mall walkers, right? You've you got to get more stuff. You're HSN addicts. And uh, is that still a channel? Okay. Um, you know, and, and you're like, you don't understand, Scott. 
When I'm in the mall, things call to me. It's who I am. Those shoes, I got to have them. I got to have them. They're so shiny and pretty. I need one more pair. That's who I am. Look, don't belittle yourself into defining yourself by the need to shop. It's not who you are. That's not who you are. And yet we say that that temptation, it's a big part of who I am. Look, here's the truth. We all want more stuff, right? We all like stuff. We all want more. We may not have your shoe fetish, you know. It might be something else. But we all love getting more stuff, and we have to fight against it. That's just common to man. Because as believers, especially for as, as believers, we, see, we believe in something. We believe something very powerful that we believe that there is, there's a virtue in living more simply, number one, to not be encumbered with, with too much, but because there's something in our spirits that tells us that there's something more important than acquiring stuff. There's something that God is blessing me for a, a reason even greater than acquiring more stuff. He's blessing me to be a blessing, right? I'm being changed to change the world. He's blessing me to bless the world. There's something, there's something in me that woke up when Jesus came into my life and said, there's, there's something else I get to use my money on now. This scripture we read here in 1 Corinthians 10, it reminds us of some more good news, and that is temp- no temptation is irresistible. No temptation is irresistible. God is faithful, it tells us. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear or resist. He just won't. He won't let you. Whatever level of temptation you have is the level of temptation you can resist. No temptation is irresistible. Now, we may have this sense, if you're like me, that there might be certain situations where we just know in that situation, we know in that situation, in that environment, if tempted, I cannot resist. I can't do it. And, and fair enough. But there is always a time and an opportunity for you to walk away. There's always a time. If you look back to every failure, there was a time I could have walked away. What happens often is that we allow ourselves to get further and further deeply into the situation, and often in full knowledge of what we're doing, we, will, we know if I take this next step, I probably am going to be unable to say no. Let's see what happens, right? We do it in full knowledge. And then we blame our failure on what? On, on having been in the situation. I, I couldn't help myself. Oh, look at the situation I was in. Right? It's not really my fault. Basically, what we're doing is something I call driving drunk in certain areas of our life. This is, this is uh, driving drunk through life. We sin under the influence, whatever that influence is for you, okay? And so when we, when we crash, metaphorically speaking, we say, well, it's not really my fault that I crashed. I mean, I was so drunk. I couldn't possibly be expected to drive well. Right? I thought that'd be a lot funnier than it came out. <laughs> so we'll use, we'll use one lapse in judgment as the excuse for the resulting lapse in judgment. Right? I can be excused for that because of this other thing that I did. And our favorite term in this situation, our favorite term is the word stupid. You, you hear this in conversation with people. Instead of saying, ah, I, made a, I made a choice and I was wrong. Oh, I was so wrong. We said, I did something really stupid, right? Stupid is the word we love. 
it gets us off the hook. We don't say I did something immoral and I'm actually doubly guilty because I knew going into it that I would probably pass that point of no return and I did it anyway. We say instead, I, I made a really stupid mistake. It was a stupid choice, right? I mean, don't blame me. I can't, you can't blame me. I'm just so stupid, right? I couldn't help myself. I had like Tom Jones singing on my shoulder the whole time. I couldn't help myself. And, and, and for some people, for some people, we'll just get really real, that drunk driving analogy is, is even more literal than metaphorical. Some people know if I get drunk, if I have, uh, and I'm actually talking about having too much to drink, if I get drunk, if I have too much to drink, I can get away with things that I, I don't have the guts to do otherwise. I can say things uh, the normal me doesn't really like to say. I can express my anger say things that I'm afraid to express. I can make sexual decisions that I know are harmful to my soul. I can make relational decisions that are unwise. I, I can hurt other people. I can take risks with myself, but I can blame the fact then I couldn't help myself. I was drunk, right? It was just a stupid mistake. Human beings are funny, right? Um, it's like saying, well, yes, I stole the car, but it was only to make a quick getaway from the bank that I robbed, <laughs> right? Obviously, I stole the car. Um, we're always looking for a way to play the victim. And you know what? And a little side note here. This is why infidelity happens. This is how it happens. Not because there's like naked people running down the road that tried to attack you. That's not why infidelity happens, right? Infidelity happens because there's a guy at work who laughs at your jokes, right? There's a girl at work or at school who, who understands you. That's why infidelity happens, right? And we say, I, I didn't mean to have the affair. I didn't mean to have the affair. I couldn't help myself. I mean, we were flirting, right? And so flirtation can be the drug of choice for some people. And and we love personal affirmation, you know? We all love to be around people who make us feel good, and, you know, make us feel desirable or something. And when you get in that situation, you gotta be on guard. When you get, when you get in that situation, that the energy fills the air and you're feeling desirable and then eventually <clears throat> you make that terrible decision that comes next. And then you say, well, I did a stupid thing, but I couldn't help myself. But see, you chose to get drunk on sexual energy, and that you could help. And so we have to fight temptation on two fronts. We, the external, the external is what we tolerate, what we put up with, what we gravitate towards, what our weakness, we know our weakness is. That's the external, as well as the inner thoughts and attitudes of our heart. There's a, uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians 10, again, it gives us hope in, in, a, in another thing. It says, that there will always be a way of escape. Verse 13 says, God will always provide a way of escape if we don't ignore the blaring siren, right, and the signs that God's putting up in front of you that say, bridge out up ahead. If we don't ignore that, he, he will give us a way of escape. Let me, let me say uh, one other thing here, and, and then we'll bring this to a close. We've talked about sins here, but now I want to put in the last kind of half of this, I want to put the emphasis on the word secret. Because it would be kind of unfair, I think, for me to, to stand here and say, you know, hey, 
leave here and stop sinning, go home, be perfect, without giving you some tools to take that first step. And the first step, I believe, is declaring, is us agreeing to declare, I will no longer keep my sin a secret. There's power for change when we do this in community. You know what I mean by community? When we do this together, you know you're the body of Christ? You know you're called that all through the, all through the New Testament, the body of Christ. We are a community. We're, we're, we're parts of a being. And, and there's a power for change when we do this in community. And there's a reverse power for destruction when we keep our sins secret. And I understand the tendency. Who doesn't want to keep their sin a secret, right? It's humiliating. But it leads to destruction. And the only way we find real victory over the bondage of sin, especially the secret sin, is to do this in community, to be authentic about our sins and our struggles. It's called integrity. Integrity comes from the same root, root word as, as integrate. Integrity, integrate, integration. It's to take the different versions of yourself and bring them together. It's the opposite, the opposite of integrity or integration is disintegration. It's one thing to sin and you say, okay, you know, God, I sinned. I let you know my sin. I need your help. I need accountability so we, we can work together. But when we add to that sin secrecy, see, now it's like I have cleaved my soul in two because I'm not living true to myself anymore. It, it, I have this version of my soul that I share with you and then I have this version of my soul that I keep private to myself. And it's that sort of an disintegration that, that can send your life spiraling downward. It can prevent any kind of spiritual growth in your life. Someone once said this. I don't remember who said it first, but it's a great truth. And it is this, that spiritual growth only happens to the side you're willing to reveal to others. I'll say that again. Spiritual growth only happens to the side you're willing to reveal to others. The other side that you keep private will continue to deteriorate. So even if you're like developing like spiritual growth in your public persona, you're still only batting 50%. Half of you is deteriorating in a secret place. So our first step, our goal is to reintegrate, reintegrate ourselves and say, I will no longer keep my sin a secret. If this sounds a little weird to you, and I know it does to some of you, check out this scripture in James. I love James. He says this, Therefore, confess your sins to who? Each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other. It says it right there. You know, uh, Catholics, some of you come out of a Catholic background, they've taken this command and applied it to their lifestyle, and that's wonderful. They have confession, right? Um, though I would say they've, they've sort of turned it into a kind of a systematic hierarchy thing that ought not to be the case. You shouldn't have to go to the paid professional holy man to confess your sins. James says here, confess your sins to each other, brothers and sisters. And, and we should practice this principle in our regular lives. 
I can't tell you how valuable this is in my life to have somebody, to have a good friend, to have a wife that I can go to and confess things to and they know everything about me and they can encourage me. We should practice this principle. We are all priests. You're called a priest in the Bible. Do you know that? Right? So if, so if you have a buddy that needs to go to confession, you say, hey, the doctor is in. Let's hear it. The priest is in. We tend to emphasize confessing our sins to God. We, you know, we do that, uh, which is absolutely correct. We're told to do that in the Word as well. Uh, but we forget that part of the healing process, according to Scripture, is when you confess to someone else in the flesh, there's something about it. See, God made you flesh and blood. That's not by accident. When, when you fell into temptation, it was through your senses, wasn't it? Imagine the joy and the relief of confessing your sins and looking into a real face with eyes that look back at you with the compassion of Christ. Imagine that relief to actually see it. And, and rest assured, when you, do, when you confess to God your sins, you are forgiven. Absolutely, he forgives you completely. His grace is real and it's powerful. But see, God has made you a physical being. And, and there's a healing that comes when we get together with a brother or a sister. And they're like, what they become in that moment is like the tangible presence of God's grace. I, I, I can take it by the hand. And the tangible presence of God's grace is looking back at you. And they can reassure you of God's mercy and forgiveness of your past and offer you accountability going forward. It helps us on two fronts. They can assure you of God's forgiveness of your past and telling someone offers accountability going forward. Matthew 26, 41 says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's famous, right? Everybody knows that. I think the whole world knows that phrase. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, oh, it's weak. <laughs> we are strange creatures, aren't we? Even though our heart can, can will something so strong, we, we will it. It's encased in so much gunk, this flesh, that sometimes the heart wills it, but the flesh kicks in and it chooses things to the contrary, right? I don't know how many times I have said I will eat better. Mel can tell you, she's shaking her head. I will. I will eat better. I really want that. I really want that. I know it's hard to picture me with an even more attractive physique than this, but it's true. I want that. I want the, I want the better body, and you'll just have to deal with the temptation when that day comes. Um, one day. Um, But I, I, I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. I want to eat better. It's not like I don't want it. I make that resolution every year. And I think that comes from the real me that we were talking about, my heart. That comes from the me, to the, the, the desire, the God-given desire to, to be more healthy, to eat better, to exercise more, right? To, to not be out of breath, to be in shape, to not have a heart attack before 50, I want that. And something else kicks in in the buffet line. Something that is foreign to my heart. And I, and I can't play the victim, right? 
because God has given me a mechanism to flee the temptation. He has. And part of me that is, the part that is me discerns the fact that I am not a wise eater. I'm not a wise discerner of food. And when it comes down to it, I got to own up to the fact it's called gluttony. There's a word for it, right? It's called being a glutton. You can dress it up, but that's what it is. How, can, can a glutton work through that? Absolutely. And the first step, thank God that he uses gluttons. Um, the first step is admitting it openly, right? And then I can start to work through it from there. So, so this is me admitting it openly. Here we go, 2015. Um, so for many of us, for many of us, though, this, this shared confession may be the missing element to, to not just making more empty resolutions, but to undergo a genuine revolution in 2015 from your DNA out. Imagine with me what this church, just this one faith community right here, what, what it would be like if we practiced this principle of integrity and authentic confession with each other all the time. Notice the scripture. James says, again, he says, you're not only confessing your sin to each other, but then they, what? Pray for each other. So they're praying for each other. And, and it goes on to talk about the prayer of a righteous man being really effective. And so we're looking, so, so this is important, we're looking for mature brothers and sisters to share with. What, what if it was normal for us not to keep sins private and secret, but to talk about them openly and honestly? I don't know about you, but I think about the kind of church that I want Julius and Mason to grow up in. I, I think about what, what, is, what is the church that I want them to grow up in? And I, th- I, I want them to grow up in a healthy church. Do you want a healthy church? That's what I want for them and their kids. I want them growing up in a healthy church. And that is a church that's built on integrity and not secrecy, where, where that's normal, where people don't suffer in silence from their own failures, where people don't wear masks to church on Sunday. We have to be the ones, for, for, for my kids to have that church, we have to be the ones right now that takes the risk of being vulnerable with each other of showing grace and mercy to one another. You and I have to do it. And, and don't get me wrong, I think we are a place of integrity. I'm not saying that we're not. Uh, I, but I know human nature well enough to know that there are people here right now, this morning, you're sitting right there, and you're suffering in silence because you're afraid of the judgment of other people. And it need not be that way. Do you know what I, I think would happen if we practiced this kind of New Testament style church integrity, I'll tell you what would happen right off the bat. We'd all become more aware of one another's faults, which would encourage us to be more merciful to each other because every single one of us would also be aware that people are becoming more aware of our faults. And you know what? There's no room in that environment for gossip. There's no room in gossip in that kind of environment. Because you know what? Gossip is like mold. It grows in the dark. Gossip grows in the world of secrecy. And you got gossip. 
Everything's out in the open. There's no gossip. And when the pressure to keep secrets goes away, so that, that dries up that gossip grapevine. Amen? Amen. All right, here's my last scripture. In conclusion, here we go. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Hebrews 12, 1. Carrying hidden sin, carrying it around, is like trying to run a race with an anvil on your back. There's freedom in confession. There's freedom there. And, and you know what? We never change things just because we say we're going to change. You've probably found that. Saying you're going to change doesn't change a thing. We only change what we are held accountable to change. What we're held accountable to change. And so if we're serious about our vision, if we're serious about people being changed by God to change the world, then we have to get serious about entering into this process together as a community. And... and it's in community together that we're going to grow spiritually, that we're going to grow emotionally this year, that you're going to grow relationally, that you're not going to be the same way that you were last year, that you're going to grow. Living things grow. That's just what living things do, right? You don't have to talk them into growing. They just do it. If you're a living thing and your spirit is alive, it's going to grow in this kind of environment. Hallelujah. You and I are the body of Christ. You're the hands and feet of God. You are the hands and feet of God to the person sitting on either side of you right now. And we're gonna ha- if we're going to have revolution in our lives, God wants to use you to make it happen in the lives around you. He wants to use you. And you know what else? He wants to use those people, the people on either side of you right now, as an instrument of change in your life, if you'll let them in. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and honor you, Lord. We thank you, Father God, for your incredible unimaginable grace and mercy, your love that has no limits, Father. We thank you. We thank you, Father God, for your your mercy that's new every single morning. You told us to forgive others as many times as there's stars in the sky, and you forgive us the same way. We ask you, Lord, give us the courage to be more vulnerable with each other, to confess our sin to each other so that we're not suffering in silence, Lord. Help us to hold each other accountable with love and grace and mercy and patience, Father God. We rebuke the, the spirits of judgmentalism and gossip and things like that, Lord. We praise you that we, we want to be the hands and feet of God. We want to be the mouthpiece of God. We want to be the ears of God to listen to people who are hurting and struggling. Help us to be more like that this year, Father God. Help us to grow in grace and grow in love and tenderness and mercy, Father God. We thank you for where you are taking us. I thank you, Lord, for where you are taking every single person in here individually in their own life and their family and their jobs and their careers and their relationships. And I thank you for where you are taking this community of Generations Church, Lord, where you are taking us and what you want to turn us into. We praise you for that. And and we embrace it full-heartedly, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Uh, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward this morning now. If you have anything, anything you need someone to agree with you about, you got something coming up or you've got a doctor's report or you've got something you're just struggling with or you've got some sin that you just want to get off your chest and you need somebody to stand with you and share the God's grace with you, come on up, pray with these people. It's not the same when we pray. They're people of faith. Hallelujah. And uh, you guys have an incredible week. Next week, uh, pastor will be back with us, Pastor, Mom and Dad, and, uh, and we're going to have a good time, okay? 
Have a great week. Love you guys. Bye-bye.